Will you please pray with me? God, we thank you for a new day. We thank you for a new possibility. And we pray, God, that in these moments together, that our hearts and minds would be open, that we would simply receive the gifts that you have, that you would illuminate our understanding with your spirit. These things we pray in your name. Amen. You know, New Year's Day could actually be a simple day to preach. Um, We could simply write on the goodwill of Christmas, and we would know, well, not everyone will be here, so maybe they didn't hear the sermon we did at Christmas time. Or we could spend our time together looking towards the East for the wise men to come. Or we could focus our energy and our um, passion on our resolutions, good resolutions, resolutions to be nicer and thinner and healthier and more generous to people. We could do all of those things, and they would be perfectly fine, and we could all learn from them, but there's one problem with them. It's not where the Bible takes us. It's not where the story of Jesus picks up. We aren't allowed to forget for one minute that God came as Jesus once more because God heard the cry of God's people, because we were in trouble, because things were a mess, and because God's heart was broken for us. We aren't allowed to forget that. And we aren't allowed to forget that once and for all, God came to show all of creation again the way to ultimate and divine freedom, the way to wholeness, the way to our greatest joy. There is a pattern in the story of human interaction with God, and it starts from the very beginning. And it's not really a very pretty pattern, but it's one that keeps being repeated over and over again. And God shows us from the very beginning that the ultimate evil is when you kill people's children. Because when you kill their children, you also kill their future. And when you kill the future, you also kill hope. That was Pharaoh's plan a thousand years before Jesus. And that was Herod's plan at the time of Jesus. But honestly, I can't help but wonder if that isn't the very thing happening in our world. When we forget amidst the politics and the policies and the covert and the overt and amidst the hatred and the polarities and against the positional that it is the children of every nation, all of the children in our world, that aren't the ones being sacrificed. I can remember having a conversation with one of my daughter's friends over um, uh, Christmas, and he is a sheriff. And we were talking, and as we were sitting in his beautiful home with his wife and four children, and he was saying, I don't understand why I should have to sacrifice anything for other people's children. Why can't they take care of their own children? And I just looked at him and I said, Brent, they're all our children, all of them. If they have, you know, 
circumstances or crummy parents or it doesn't matter. What matters is it's the child in the midst of the of the dilemma or the rhetoric. It's the child. In Matthew 2, 13 through 23, we hear about what Jesus had to do in the Holy Family in the midst of such controversy. If everybody thought, why should I help another child? We don't really know what would have become of Jesus. Listen to this story from Matthew 2. After the scholars were gone, God's angel showed up again in Joseph's dream and commanded, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay until further notice. Herod is on the hunt for this child and wants to kill him. Joseph obeyed. He got up and he took the child and his mother under cover of darkness. They were out of town and well on their way by daylight. They lived in Egypt until Herod's death. This Egyptian exile fulfilled what Hosea had preached. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod, when he realized that the scholars had tricked him, flew into a rage. He commanded the murder of every little boy, two years old and under, who lived in Bethlehem and its surrounding hills. He determined that age from information he had gotten from scholars. A sound was heard in Ramah, weeping and much lament. Rachel weeping for her children, Rachel refusing all solace. Her children gone, dead and buried. Later, when Herod died, God's angel appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Up, take the child and his mother and return to Israel. All those out to murder the child are dead. And Joseph obeyed. He got up, took the child and his mother and, re- and re-entered Israel. When he heard, though, that Archelaus had succeeded his father, Herod, as king in Judah, he was afraid to go there. But then Joseph was directed in a dream to go to the hills of Galilee. On arrival, he settled in the village of Nazareth. This move was a fulfillment of the prophetic words, he should be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. I think everyone has some curiosity about where they come from. There's just something about being able to trace your ancestors that provides a sense of continuity, it provides a sense of community, that nurtures our our sense of belonging to a larger family. My kids gave me the DNA uh, testing kit from the Ancestry.com for Christmas. And to be honest, I'm very excited to see what it has to say. Maybe it'll be very surprising what I find. But even before I do anything with the testing, I know that I didn't originate here. I know that at some point my ancestors either got on a boat or were thrown on a boat and set out for something new. And I would hazard a guess that about 99.9% of everybody here today have the same ancestral story of leaving one place to arrive in another with a fairly unknown and uncertain future. And while we don't know all the reasons for our ancients, to have left their culture and their language and their history behind, uh, 
We don't know all their reasons. Most of us are fairly certain that they weren't running for their lives. So I wonder, because we all come from that spot, where did it all begin to break down? This one ship we have for one another as fellow migrants, refugees, from hardship or seekers of a better life. I wonder when did we begin to let our own history fade and our past and replace it with a sense of entitlement or elitism? When did we become us and the new ones become them? And at what point did we begin to fear that there isn't enough to go around, not enough to share hope and embrace with confidence Jesus' commandment to love one another and to welcome all of those into the greater family? When did that all start to fade for us? So as we begin a new year, perhaps it would be good for us to reflect Maybe it's an opportunity for us to reflect not just on our individual stories, but on our Christian story, on the story that we've been called to reflect on and to live, the story of Christ. It's good for us to remember, but then it needs to move beyond remembering. Not only must we remember, but we must allow our remembering to ignite a brand new compassion and a strengthened resolve to care for the least of these. Matthew's story of Joseph and Mary and the child actually occurs in a world that seems strangely familiar and strangely contemporary. They live in a world where there are paranoid and corrupt politicians, where there are dangers and cries and also a world where there are people who are faithfully trying to respond to God's will. And these few verses seek to describe a sharp contrast in terms of a collision between two dominions. You can see that Matthew's account of the Christmas story doesn't involve the warm, feel-good story that we have carefully edited for ourselves and our children. That story is actually lifted up from the very best parts of the Gospels that have the Christmas story in them. We lift up a piece here and a piece there, and we push away some of the other pieces because they're not pleasant. But in Matthew, Matthew, tragedy intersects with the Christmas story. And Matthew portrays the unfolding drama of God's continuing story with Israel in light of Jesus' birth. In this passage, Matthew describes the liberation of God's people once again, although it didn't feel like liberation at all to them. Matthew doesn't shy away from the fact that redemption always comes at a great cost, which Israel's earlier history demonstrates. And it's very sobering that the cost is once again the lives of innocent children. This is the repeated pattern, not of God, but of humankind. Get rid of the kids. Get rid of the future. Get rid of the hope. When Luke emphasizes the reality of this world with the smells of the 
and the sounds of the stable in, in Bethlehem and, and augments the story of humility by inviting shepherds to the party, which are not a part of Matthew's story. Matthew highlights the dangers and the costs inherent in challenging the world's dominion, the world's struggles. And this is a text we often avoid at Christmas, even though modern readers recognize the tragedy that are revealed in the passage. It's just that we hear so much about this. We hear so much about real people experiencing these same horrors and hardships right now while the rest of us, the world, watches. And we become immune because sometimes they don't look like us or it doesn't feel like us or we think that because they're poor or because they're different that they don't feel like us. Or maybe we just can't handle the, de- the depth of sorrow that we would feel. And so we avoid it. And we feel helpless, or at the very worst, we feel apathetic because we've known too many instances of genocide, infanticide, gendercide, both ancient and modern. Matthew reminds us that Jesus came into the world we know with all of its problems and with all of its sin and with all of its challenges, came into the world as the one that was most vulnerable as a child. And in order for the world to claim redemption, they would have to find enough people to care about this refugee child. They would have to find enough for this child to grow and to do what this child was called to do. Jesus came into the world of Herods who would kill children to ensure his throne. And Jesus didn't come as a warrior king. No, we, we've heard that. But as the very, very one that Herod would seek to kill. So in these verses, in these verses Joseph has three dreams. Joseph the dreamer. More dreams, I think, than anybody else. But in this dream, an angel appears to Joseph with an urgent message. Herod is out to kill the newborn child out to kill yours, actually, but won't stop at anything, get up, and he can do it with impunity. Imagine brutality and torture and murder condoned by leaders. The Holy Family has just received extravagant gifts from very important people, from exotic visitors. And we've just been exposed to the meaning of his birth and the promise of his life. And it seemed in that bright and shining moment when all eyes were focused on that baby that there was so much hope that maybe this was it. Maybe this was the end of everything they had known. But now the nightmare truly begins. Joseph moves from promise to terror with the dreaming of one dream. The nightmare doesn't end when Joseph wakes up. And you can only imagine, just like in that first Passover, when they were told, get up, don't even, you can't even let your bread rise. Hurry up. Don't take much with you. We've got to hurry. In this night, Joseph and Mary are scurrying around. They don't have much anyway, but they're trying to stuff everything into a little bag. And they're walking down the street and out the gate. 
onto the main road to get to Egypt as fast as possible, and the baby is crying, and the mother is exhausted, and Joseph, heart clutching in his throat every time a soldier looks at him and his little family. I don't think they could have done it by themselves, to be honest with you. I think it would have taken a few more of those people who saw the refugee family and helped them. But the nightmare doesn't end when they get to their place of refuge. It grows greater because it spreads beyond Joseph and the new family and pervades the region that they've left behind. And as the scriptures talk about that most poignant and and devastating quote from Isaiah, the inconsolable cries of the mother set the land echoing with wailing and lamentations. The Greek word here indicates that Rachel, who is the mother, 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 the ancestral mother, does not want to be consoled. When we lose someone, our mourning honors them. And to cease mourning feels like we have ceased honoring them. And her children are no more. She has nothing left but her tears over them. And if she gives up her tears, all seems lost. And so she doesn't want to be consoled. She doesn't want to feel better. In Joseph's second dream, he hears another strong imperative from an angel of the Lord. And it's an imperative that seeks to protect his newly formed family and their life together. But it also is a word that speaks against a system of authority out to destroy and cause death to the vulnerable and the helpless. Joseph's dream leads him to take his family back. Back. They've already settled there. They have met the kindness of others who would welcome this refugee family into Egypt. But Egypt was the place that they escaped from. It was a land of bondage. It was embittered slavery and harsh oppression, and they're going there to find safety? But Joseph has to take a risk and go back to a place that was so hard. And trusting on the irony that this would protect, literally save his family. And that the people there would be kind and welcoming in some way. And apparently they were. The journey of Joseph and Jesus Jesus and Mary into Egypt broadens the road for our life together as the church. And particularly as we minister with those who live on the edges, those who are older and infirm, the widows, the widowers, the shut-ins by loss of independence and age's rapid decline. We are called to go into the hard places of one another's lives, even though we don't want to go there. We're called to go there with each other. Finally, Joseph's dream is a dream of relief. At least it feels that way. He is told that Herod is dead. And not only is Herod dead, but like Moses before him, when God spoke to him and said, not only is Pharaoh dead, but everybody who ever wanted you dead is dead. And the angel says these very words to Joseph. Not only is Herod dead, but everybody who wanted you dead is dead. Now you can go home. So this family, after dealing with a strange language and different food and customs that they didn't understand 
and the ambiguous state of being refugees, if not illegal immigrants, they can go home. Home to the food and the local talk and the neighborhoods that they loved. And they became so precious that even as they remembered them, they wanted to go back and see where their father's father's father was raised. It was still there. But no sooner did they begin their trip and arrive than the nightmare returns because Joseph doesn't even have to dream this because there's already been rumors about this. Herod is gone, but his son, Archelaus, is ruling over Judea. And do you know that in history, Archelaus was so brutal and such a known sociopath that he was recalled to Rome because the Romans felt he was too brutal. These are the Romans of crucifixions. But the very Roman government felt like he was too brutal and they recalled him to Rome. Perhaps because of his experience with Herod, Joseph is immediately on edge and he's afraid to go where he's told that it would be safe to go. And so he... His fear is confirmed by a third dream so that he and his family head, head north to Galilee. There will be no homecoming after all. No return to where they once called home. They will have to go and make a new home again. They will have to start all over again to rely on others, to rely on strangers, to rely on God, to have a sense of belonging. So according to Matthew, Jesus starts his childhood as a refugee, fleeing from Judea to Egypt, then briefly from Egypt to Judea, and finally from Judea to Galilee. Jesus' early childhood gives witness to the truth that Matthew will later have Jesus summarize in his own words. Jesus said this about himself. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head from the day he was born. So the Holy Family is a refugee family. And we, like Jesus, gathered and called out by God, are, we're free to be led by God's cord. We're free to fill our lives with human kindness. We're free to be merciful and loving to one another. We're free to welcome people into this broad and wonderful family. It's a freedom like no other freedom you can ever experience because you can experience it anywhere. We are free, along with members in the covenant community, to join and to take and be in different places along the Christian community. We don't all have to sound alike. We don't have to walk in lockstep to be one family. Hope, you see, is always going forward. We don't hope in the past. We hope in the future. So as we move into 2017, with all of our plans to do better, with all of our plans to be better, with all of our plans to serve more unselfishly, 
with every resolution that you've ever made, maybe we could do it and remember that when we do better, we must do better for them. Our Lord Jesus was one of these refugee children. He and his family depended on other people. And when we are helpful, when we can reach out our hand to a person that's in need, whether it's a refugee or whether it's a neighbor, when we reach out to them, we reach out to Christ. And because we are the body of Christ, we reach out for Christ. Thanks be to God.